This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney. Uh, Justin, we took a bit of a break and it was encouraging, but we've also felt the pressure of listeners who have uh, been asking us, uh, when are you going to come back to help us sort out uh, what's been uh, an, a really an absolutely unbelievable couple of weeks of news? And so I'm, I'm really glad to be back with you, glad to be back for our listeners. But before we get to, uh, I, I think, the, the big stories that folks are going to uh, be interested in uh, how how are you doing? Catch catch us up. It's been a been a few weeks. Doing well. I just flew in, and I know we've both been really busy. Just flew in from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Was speaking at um, uh, Bethel University, so I had a good time there. Shout out to all the folks that came to to hear me at at Bethel. Uh, and the important thing is, we're back. I'm glad to be back. I'm with you. I heard a lot of uh, a lot of supporters and people that follow us kind of say hey where are you guys at we need we need some uh we need some of your insight on the on all these issues and so i appreciate that uh we we don't do that too often we had some things to take care of but thank you for sticking with us uh and we're gonna get into it uh on this episode absolutely uh you know uh, one bit of news that uh is a bit lighter but still serious is you know the buffalo bills just as an update are four and one Um, so you know a lot has developed on that front in terms of the buffalo bills winning like many times uh so so that's 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 been good that's been good to see yeah it looks like they got a little bit of a squad man i'm not again i'm not even gonna hate on you man i'm gonna let you uh i'm not gonna steal your joy i'm gonna let you enjoy this hopefully it lasts man i i don't have any issues with the bills they're not one of those teams that i really root against yeah uh so we'll see what happens man hopefully they can continue with the, the you know with the winning yeah yeah for sure w well hey we have a lot to talk about in this in this episode and the, the first topic is this impeachment inquiry and there's there's a lot of news to catch up on, but but just to give kind of a, a brief summary, we know that Speaker Pelosi has been trying to slow walk some of her more aggressive colleagues for a number of reasons on impeachment, and basically has been doing so uh, since Trump took office, and then especially once she uh, took the speakership. Uh, but all of that changed when a whistleblower uh, alleged that basically in a in a in a call with Ukraine's prime minister that Trump uh, connected support for Ukraine with a direct request for Ukraine to investigate one of his chief political rivals right now, uh, Joe Biden, tied to. Uh, Joe Biden's conduct as uh, vice president 
and his collection, his connection with pushing for the firing of a uh, prosecutor, and then also his Trump has tried to tie in Biden's son's involvement with a company in Ukraine. Now, just we could do an entire episode just unpacking that. And there's been some excellent writing. There's the basic consensus of reporting on this and not just recent reporting, but reporting that predates all of this impeachment stuff. So it's not reporting that sort of within the political context of impeachment is that uh, Biden was absolved from accusations of corruption. His call for firing the prosecutor was echoed by Republicans at the time uh, in the Senate and in positions of authority. But this is Trump, Trump wanted to sort of stir this all back up. So, so there's that. We have now seen an, at least one other whistleblower come forward affirming the basic context of the first whistleblower's claim that this has happened. And then we've also seen this rolling out of news that the use of the president's authority and the apparatus of the federal government, there have been implications that he's been using foreign diplomacy to advance his own interests and also to improve his political standing through using diplomacy to sort of undermine political rivals. This news broke. And within days, Speaker Pelosi announced she now approved an impeachment inquiry. We have seen all of the 2020 can all of the major 2020 candidates, including as of today, Joe Biden uh, or this week, Joe Biden coming out in favor of impeachment inquiry. Uh, And we've seen the numbers change pretty drastically in terms of a public opinion where there is a poll out today showing 58% of Americans supporting impeachment. A poll out also showed 28% of evangelicals supporting uh, an impeachment inquiry. Justin, I'm glad that we've had some time to process some of this news because as we've discussed, or as I've told you, this decision to launch this impeachment inquiry is one of the more complicated, I feel very conflicted about about this process. And before I hand it off to you, I'll just, I feel conflicted because I've been convinced really uh, for, for months that an impeachment inquiry is justified on its merits. And that is because I view an impeachment inquiry as a process. Uh, I uh, view it as, as a political process, not a, not a, a, a legal verdict. And I believe this president's conduct warrants the consideration by Congress. Certainly the Ukraine allegations, the whistleblower allegations have now elevated that for me to be a real certainty. The reason why I'm conflicted is because I think the political implications of this are far from certain. I think, A, it's very unlikely that 20 Republican senators are going uh, 20 plus Republican senators are going to back uh, removing this president from office, and so there is a certain sense of futility, political futility, about walking down this road. Uh, I, I'd also say, in, in the context of an election, when the American people are deciding who they will vote for for president, to have this parallel process where you have. Congress, but obviously a political body, basically deciding what to do with Trump. 
I, th- I think is just a very complicating factor. I have rested on the fact that the sort of political uncertainty is something that will just have to be worked out in order for the constitutional process to be upheld and for for our political institutions to show some kind of spine in the face of uh, what we're seeing. But I don't know how it's going to turn out, Justin. So with with those kind of comments... very interested. What do you think about a the, the the claims of the whistleblower and whether it justifies an impeachment inquiry from your point of view? And then where where do you think this is this is headed in the House? And then uh, sort of the trajectory of of the, of this whole unfolding saga. Yeah. So as you know, I, I was a little uh, really slow to say that you know they should move forward with impeachment. I've, I've really kind of stood to some extent with Nancy Pelosi on this. Uh, number one, and you pointed it out, you're not going to get a conviction. So just so everybody knows, the House of Representatives is the is the they decide whether to impeach a president. Right. And so you go through the House. But then in order to actually impeaching the president isn't isn't it by itself. Right. Because you still have to get a go to the House to get a conviction. Um, and so what's going to happen because the Democrats have a majority in the House If and when this moves forward, they will probably be able to impeach him. But as Michael pointed out, they're not they're not going to be able to get a conviction and get him out of office. Uh, So some would say and there's different perspectives on this. And I think different uh, perspectives with merit. Some would say this is somewhat academic. Right. My issue with it initially, especially after the Mueller investigation, which I wouldn't say was a dud. I think some important information came out in it. But I do think Democrats raised the expectations way above really what came out at the end of the day and what happened at the end of the day was that this does serve as a huge distraction. It just sucks the it sucks the air out of every other conversation, especially when you have an opportunity for the people to uh, cast their vote in 2020. It kind of figures it figures itself out. Um, I'm at the point right now where I'm not going to lose sleep over uh, the inquiry. I I can support the inquiry and and I completely understand why this is problematic and why I think the House and, you know, hopefully others would feel like they need to check this president who is uh, seems to be completely out of control and not really treating the office with the respect that that it deserves and and the honor that it it deserves. And and it's not a surprise to people, but I don't think you just sit there and let people continue to do that. So so I get it. Uh, I I get it from that perspective. But again, I think people are just, you know, they're like, well, if we have to go through it, we have to go through it. The, the numbers are changing because we're getting so many different stories and this does not smell uh, very good at all. But I still think people are somewhat hesitant because there's so many other issues we could be talking about. Uh, but the the president's um, yeah. behavior just won't let, you know, just won't let yeah. the conversation go to other areas. Uh, so, so we'll see what happens. I, I would imagine that Nancy Pelosi is going to go forward with. Uh, you know, go forward with all of this and then you're going to, you know, it's going to get to the Senate and, and, you know, it's not going to it's not going to go through in the Senate. And Mitch McConnell, who is the leader of the of the Senate on the Republican side, he uh, has pretty much said that already. I think it's a really good point, Justin, like the, the, the fact that because Donald Trump takes up so much oxygen, because he is so um, he garners so much attention and not just by virtue of being president, but by by how he fills the role, there's an extent that almost a center of gravity kind of thing. Like, how could this not have happened? How, how could the conversation be about anything but him? And I think the stakes are high. 
now that we've embarked on this at a time when sit, when trust in government is so low, a trust in civic processes so low, a trust in rule of law is so low. Our political institutions, specifically the House and the Senate, have a responsibility to take up this process with sobriety, uh, with a respect for their colleagues, a respect for the office of the presidency, and almost you know, aside of how it turns out, I, I think it's really important the American people uh, see a process that is uh, worthy of of the the oaths of office that these public officials have 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 made. I am concerned, Justin, that the political environment right now doesn't make that very likely. And so we've seen, for instance, you know, Speaker Pelosi, many of the presidential candidates. Uh, share messages about how seriously they're taking the process that this is not something to celebrate that this is this is a this is something to be sober about and then we're seeing advocacy groups raising uh, uh democratic advocacy groups raising money around impeachment we're seeing some of the more progressive members of the house holding rallies outside the Capitol about how how we're finally finally going to get this guy and finally we won't have to deal with him anymore, suggesting that for some of these members, it, they didn't need Ukraine uh, in order to convince them that the president needed to be impeached. For many of them, they didn't need Mueller uh, in, in order to uh, go down this road. I, I am hoping that this process restores some uh, some confidence in the legislative branch and in how our institutions hold up, the likelihood of that happening seems pretty low to me. Our institutions are in such a weak state that it's uh, it's going to be hard for them to function in, in an appropriate way, particularly in an election season. Yeah, and that shouldn't be much to ask for, but, um, you know, don't hold your breath. I think one, one yeah. point uh, that I would make is that I do think Adam Schiff has made some mistakes. And Adam Schiff is the... Um, he is the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, I think he needs to kind of follow the lead of Nancy Pelosi on this because he's made some mistakes and I think they were unnecessary. Uh, even, you know, I, I think when the transcript first came out, he gave this scenario and read it in the committee as if it was the transcript, but it's actually something that he kind of made up, right? It was like, this is what I think the conversation probably went like. Uh, but people would know that watching, you would almost think that he was actually reading the transcript. So it just, I mean, I don't know how that the intention, intentions were bad, but it was just something that just didn't make a whole lot of sense. So you, you have to be very careful. Nancy Pelosi is going to have to really pull out all the stops to make sure people understand who the leader is and, and understand that she's not going to be able to control everything. But this should be, to your point, conducted with integrity. I got a chance, as you know, the White House drafted an eight-page letter. The White House counsel, uh, the head counsel yes. for uh, the, yes, the president, drafted an eight-page letter that I got a chance to read earlier today to the House Democrats. And it kind of yeah. touched on some of the points that you were making. Um, and so in this letter, basically, the White House was making the case that the House Democrats are denying Trump due process in this uh, impeachment inquiry. And just so everybody knows, due process is a legal term. That's Basically, right. when you're going through a, when you're going through a legal process uh, in America, we believe that you should have uh, a certain amount of notice. 
We believe that you should have a certain opportunity to defend yourself, mm. uh, to put forth evidence and go through a process so that it can actually be, be just instead of somebody, you know, you wake up tomorrow, you're in the middle of this huge lawsuit and you didn't even <laughs> get a chance to really defend yourself. So we when we talk about due process is about giving people the time and the opportunity to truly defend to defend themselves. Uh, the Trump administration is making their case that when it comes to this impeachment inquiry, uh, that they weren't given due process and therefore the Constitution has been violated. I read the letter and, and you know, in my humble opinion, I think it's more it's less of a legal document and kind of more of a political document. Uh, they point out one of the major things that they point out, and this is political, too, to some extent, even on the Democrat side, was that Nancy Pelosi didn't hold a vote before starting the inquiry. And if you look back at two other cases, which was the case of Nixon and the case of uh, Bill Clinton, uh, there was a vote that was held prior to the actual inquiry. That didn't happen this time. They're saying that was precedent, that she had to do it because it happened in those two instances. I'm not sold on that. I'm not sold that she had to do it because of those other two instances. I don't think that makes it unconstitutional. If you look at the Constitution and some of the cases surrounding it, uh, that is a, a somewhat of a broad authority and it, without, without a whole lot of formalities attached to it. But, you know, that's open to interpretation. But if you look at it from the Democrat side, what Nancy Pelosi was really trying to do is not hold the vote to protect some of her people who are in these districts that that were taking, you know, that they took the the seat from a Republican. And she was, so she was trying to watch out for them. And she's trying to go through this process without having having to have those folks commit and actually put themselves in, in tough positions. So there's a lot of strategy at, at play right here. A lot of politics that is kind of hiding behind things that are more legal. And we have to check that out. As you mentioned, Michael, that um, the numbers are changing. Uh, you know, it seems like the majority of people are OK with impeachment, are OK with the inquiry. Uh, and so that's going to be tough for Trump. One of the other things that people are, are talking about. So in the letter, I guess I can go back to that in the letter. One of the things that Trump is basically saying is because this inquiry is constitutionally invalid, that they're not going to cooperate with the impeachment inquiry. Uh, they are not going to provide any witnesses. They are not going to provide any documents. In fact, there was supposed to be an interview with the ambassador of U of the European Union, and they called it off. Right. Uh, and so uh, the, another point that was made in this conversation was that the Democrats were using this uh, to really undo the 2016 election. So that was their way of undoing the 2016 election. They actually had some quotes that was like, who said that? Why would somebody say, you know, some as ridiculous as some of the quotes they have in there from Democrats basically saying that, you know, we're trying to impeach him to get him out of office or whatever. Then, you know, they also said that it's really part of a 2020 strategy and all this other stuff that and then, like I said, that's why I say this was more of a political document to me than a legal document, although it had some legal uh, pretext, if you will. Uh, another thing that, that, that you got to get out of this, though, if you're looking at this process and we're saying it has to be done with integrity, it makes it very difficult when the, when the president is already coming out and saying that he's not going to participate. He's not going to cooperate. One of the big questions that people are having right now is, was there a quid pro quo, either either explicitly or implicitly over this call? Quid pro quo really means this for that, right? So if I say, hey, uh, Michael, uh, I will give you uh, $100 if you, you know, do this, 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 uh, this and this for me. 
That's a quid pro quo. I'm saying I'll give you this money if you do a service for me. The Democrats are saying they believe there was a quid pro quo where Trump was basically saying, hey, I need you to do this investigation or else I'm going to hold this three hundred and three hundred and ninety one million dollars that the U.S. was going to give Ukraine for security aid. And if that's the case, uh, that is something that should not happen. And that, I think, is impeachable. So just a lot of different conversations that we're that we're seeing going on here. I believe that they will go forward probably with impeachment. I think it's too far to turn back for Pelosi. Again, you get to the Senate and I don't think it goes it, it goes too much further. But let me address one other thing that has really been getting to me. Um, it is hard for me to express uh, the disappointment that I have in for in two politicians uh, in particular. And those two politicians are one former politician, one po- present politician are Senator Lindsey Graham and uh, Rudy Giuliani. Um, these were two people who I, I can't necessarily say I agreed with all of their their policies, but I did think that they could be taken seriously at one point. Now I look back and say, how, how did I think that? Um, but it, it's just really sad. I mean, in the case of Senator uh, Lindsey Graham, this is somebody who called Trump a race baiter. It's somebody who called him when he was running against him in, uh, for president. He called him a xenophobic bigot, someone that could not represent conservatism, someone who could not represent the party. He's gone from that very clear and solid position to really being the, the president's biggest defender, being the main person that is trying to defend the indefensible. And it is sickening. I mean, even if you look at, you know, when he talks about this impeachment, he just said the other day that this impeachment is just the Democrats trying to uh, destroy this nation for no good reason. Um, or, or, you know, they're about to destroy the nation for no good reason because of this inquiry, as if as if uh, Trump's behavior has nothing to do with this, as if the call was on the up and up and everything was, was OK, saying that he saw nothing wrong with the phone transcript Um and that the, and making it very clear that based on the transcript, they're not going to impeach the president, not waiting to see what comes out of the inquiry or any of that stuff. Uh, it's also clear that he has lowered his personal opinion of what the standard for impeachment should be. If you look at the video and things that he said when Clinton was going through this process, he basically said, look, you don't have to commit a crime. You don't even have to do something that's all, you know, that's that's all that bad. We can use impeachment when the, the person in office just needs to be cleaned out of the office, right? Because they've dirtied up the office so much. I don't need necessarily a crime. I can get you out of there if you're basically dishonoring uh, the post. And if that hasn't happened so far, then I don't I don't know what has. So it's just really unfortunate that somebody like uh, Lindsey Graham, who used to seem sensible, even if even in disagreements that I had with him, he used to seem sensible. And, and it's unfortunate to see that. And, and then Rudy Giuliani, um, you know, apparently he, you know, he's the president's uh, personal attorney. Apparently he was the go between for the president in Ukraine. Then he has all these dubious uh, business deals going on in Ukraine and all these clients and all this crazy stuff that is clearly unethical. I mean, and he, he's in a tough situation and, and really could face some some serious consequences. But this was a guy at one point that was a very well respected United States attorney. This is a guy who was a mayor of a big city, New York. And now people can question. I think there's legitimate questions about the harshness of some of his policing policies. Uh, and and But one thing that you can't say about Rudy Giuliani during that time is that people didn't take him seriously. 
he was a politician that you took seriously because he had serious ideas, whether you disagreed with them or not. He seemed like he had a, a at least a level of uh, integrity. Yep. Uh, after 9-11, he was known or people were calling him America's mayor. I saw I can't remember the name. Uh, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes if, if I get it. Someone on, on Twitter was saying if he you know, if, if Lord forbid he would have passed away in 2002 or uh, yeah, in 2003. He would have been something somebody they made statues after. I mean, that that's the kind of reputation that that this guy had. And now you have this dude on TV interviews, honestly looking like a complete buffoon, contradicting himself and, and making absolutely no sense. He famously said not too long ago that truth isn't truth when trying to defend why he wouldn't allow uh, the president to speak to to Mueller in that investigation. And so it's just disappointing to see uh, politicians and ambition and self-interest take people to a place where they really kind of lose their integrity. And this isn't just a Republican thing. Those happen to be two Republican examples. But it's very sad to see how far people will lower themselves to be in close proximity to power. Um, and, and I just want to point out that's just, just been really, really unfortunate. Completely agree. I, that that was quite a quite an overview. You know, someone who doesn't necessarily need access to power or money, and you could tell a bit in how he's conducted himself differently than Senator Lindsey Graham is Mitt Romney, who you know is could be senator for life in Utah if he wanted to be. Like, like no one's voting him out. He, he'll be able to leave on his own terms. He has his own money and finance. He's safe there. Trump can't hurt him there. He doesn't necessarily need to care too much if Trump tweets about him. And we've seen Mitt Romney this week uh, and and really since the beginning of the, the whistleblower, we've seen Mitt Romney treat treat these claims with seriousness, not overblown sort of, but with, with sobriety. I, I hope that that continues to be his posture. I hope that folks, rather than being cynical and rather than asking where are the Republicans who are going to show some leadership on this and some conscience, and then when one of them actually does so, we say, well, you're a Republican, so you're like a de facto hypocrite. Um, I think we need to be thankful for what Romney is doing, encourage him to continue to be a voice. If this thing moves over to the Senate, you could see someone like Mitt Romney really changing the dynamics of the way that the process unfolds in the Senate. If you have a uh, someone who was a nominee for the Republican Party just eight years ago, not laughing away the charges, not being a sycophantic apologist for the president, but looking at the evidence and actually taking things seriously, you know, it it, it may take twenty or so Republicans to remove the president from office, it may only take one or two or three to drastically change the view, the the perception that the American people have what President Trump has done in office and the seriousness of the of the charge. And so I want to give kudos to to Senator Romney, who stuck his neck out a bit, which is his job. He's a he's a U.S. senator. He's operating from a, a, a safe seat. But we need to be uh, we need to know when people are doing the right thing, particularly when they're from the other party. And I've been encouraged to see him not playing politics, uh, not playing partisan politics with the whistleblowers uh, charges as they've come out. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kudos to him. I think uh, Ben Sass has made some statements, too. I know he's come under fire because he hasn't been as vocal lately against uh, against Trump. Uh, I would I would hope to see more of that from him. I think I'm trying to be give some grace because I, I do think he's playing chess. Right. I think he's saying, look, if I'm not here at all uh, and I'm, you know, I'm one person, if I'm not here at all, uh, there's nothing more I can get done. But at some time, at some point, you just have to make a decision and, and run with it. So I'm hoping that he's uh, choosing his battles wisely, playing chess and ready to do what's right, uh, you know, when the moment comes. But we do have to understand that you do have to choose your battles. And so hopefully that's the case. I, I, but at the same time, I can't say that the criticism is wrong. I think the criticism is, is good. It keeps people honest. And so uh, let's hope that those folks, there's some other folks, too, that will come out and do the right thing uh, when the time comes. Right. I think history, you know, if if this moves over to the Senate and some of these uh, folks like Rubio, like Sass, like Romney, who have been getting hit from the left and sort of the assumption has been and some of their defenders have have said, you know, this is that they want to make sure that they're in a position to take a stand when it really count, like when everything's on the line. Uh, I think there, like you said, there's good reason since, you know, we're three years into this administration and there, there hasn't been, uh, there hasn't been a Waterloo yet. Um, but if, if history goes in a way in which, you know, they, history works out so that they are there at the pivotal moment, I, I think it will look on their decisions to, maybe not be as loud as Democrats would have liked to have seen. Uh, it'll put all of that in a different light. Like that, there's a real opportunity here. Given the way, uh, g- given, you know, we need to see how we don't have all the evidence. We need to see how the impeachment inquiry turns out in the House. What We're getting new news and developments, whistleblowers coming forward, news about different countries sort of being implicated in different schemes. But depending on how it, how it rolls out, we, we might need to revise our view of the role that people like Rubio and Sass and Romney have played. Uh, I'm not sort of putting all my eggs in that basket, but but it has sort of struck me as a possibility. Like maybe they they knew, <laughs> like a, maybe they had their eyes on, on a crisis point like this. Again, there's so much we we weren't able to cover when looking uh, at this. I would refer folks. CNN has live updates that you could just go down, sort of scroll down and follow all the news every day. There seems to be 8, 10, 12 sort of breaking news related items regarding uh, the impeachment inquiry. And so we're going to continue to cover that news, make sure you uh, folks are getting a well-rounded perspective. But during the week, for those of you who are trying to keep up, you know, there are some good resources out there for you to do so. All right. When we get back, we're going to discuss uh, one of the other big topics of conversation since our last episode, and that is the trial, uh, the conviction, and the aftermath of the Botham John murder and the Amber Geiger conviction. Uh, We'll discuss many of the angles related to that when we get back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And last week, the Botham John uh, uh, 
the, the trial concerning the murder of both John came to a conclusion. Verdict uh, of guilty was passed to Amber Geiger, who was a uh, off-duty Dallas uh, PD official who, as, as folks will, will remember, basically walked into Botham John's uh, apartment and shot him. Her story was that she was confused. She was on the, she was sort of rushing and thought that she was walking into her own apartment, which was on a different floor of the same building, but instead was knocking on Botham's door uh, and he answered and uh, uh, she, she thought he was an intruder, obviously. Well, the jury found her guilty was sentenced to 10 years. And so that's, that's one piece of this I want to, we want to discuss, which is there's been a lot of legitimate and sort of obvious commentary on the fact that a 10 year sentence for murder is less than what many of the sentences are for drug offenses for much lesser crimes. So I want to talk about the verdict. Then we also want to talk about some of the aftermath of the case both of John's brothers' expression of forgiveness, which is reminiscent of similar, particularly what happened in the aftermath of Charleston. But we saw escalation, evolution of the cultural conversation that happened after Charleston in this case. And then thirdly, there's been a discussion about the judge's role in this, particularly her hug of Amber Geiger, the fact that Amber, the judge handed Amber a Bible, told her she should read uh, John 316. Uh, and there has been criticism of that, including a lawsuit um, from the Freedom From Religion Foundation uh, suggesting that such a move undermined the judge's impartiality and uh, was a violation of the separation of church and state as she's a public official. Just didn't want to get into all the various layers of this case. Uh, let Let's first discuss the trial, the verdict, and, and what is an absolute tragedy and the, the loss of, of Botham's life that is at the core, obviously, of all of this and should not be lost in sort of the surrounding conversations. Yeah, the first thing I'd like to note um, on that verdict was uh, you didn't see the and campaign respond immediately on social media to the verdict. Um, and that was by design. Um, we, you know, I'm not at all a believer in knee jerk reactions and you got to say something immediately. I, I think the value of that is very limited, especially when the information is limited because a lot of people who were responding immediately had no more information than what they saw somebody else post on social media. Right. Hadn't really dug into what the case was about. Hadn't really dug into the defenses. You might have caught here and there that people were upset about a certain defense being admitted and upset about this or that. But hadn't really dug into the conversation. And I think the Ann campaign always wants to make sure that when you hear from us and it may take a little bit longer and you'll have to bear with us, but that when you hear from us that we've done our homework, that we've really analyzed the situation. Now, we now absolutely we can always express uh, we can be mournful. We can we can always say, you know, uh, that w that we are there with people who are suffering. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about r rendering some type of opinion 
uh, before we really have had a chance to really analyze all the facts. And that's just our position. Some people don't agree with that, but I think it, I think we we really overestimate the value of an immediate uh, response. So anybody who had questions about that, that's uh, our position in in that regard. And I think in looking and actually digging into what was going on in that case, and not just what you you know you see in a headline or what you see in a report of of thirty seconds, uh, I do think that the sentence was light uh, for what happened. I think it was a, a very light sentence. Um, and uh, that is unfortunate. And so I do understand that people are angry about that. I'm, I'm certainly not happy about that. Um, but, but I would agree after looking into it, I think that was a, a light sentence based on, on what happened. Um, well, what were your thoughts on that, Michael, before we go, I don't want to go get ahead of you. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think, I, I think we're all fighting and you saw this among, uh, some of the more active criminal justice advocates, which is, you know, and I, I think I think it's important to step back and, and uh, make sure that th- there's a, a principle being involved, uh, uh, that there's a principle involved. With, and, and the tension is the major criminal justice reform push right now, particularly on the progressive side, but but even on, I, I think we're seeing as close to a bipartisan consensus as possible, which is that... Um, uh, sentencing has been too harsh in the past uh, across the board, certainly pertaining to certain types of crimes and certain communities. But but there's been overall a, a message of uh, uh, that, that sentencing should should be more flexible and, and less harsh and that um, uh, there's been a push against mandatory minimums, that kind of thing. And so, you know, I, I do feel like that's that's a that's an impulse right now, but, but then I'd have, I'd have to, uh, have, have to agree. Now uh, it's important to note, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about this as we, as we move on, but it's the jury that makes the recommendation as to sentencing, not the judge. And so that, that's, that's an important thing. And it was the jury that decided against uh, a 28 year sentence, which was on the table, and decided this lesser sentence was appropriate. And they were the ones charged with it. They were the ones who heard the case, but, but yeah, on its face, you're, I think the, the reaction of someone who didn't follow every, uh, who hasn't read the testimony, who hasn't uh, looked at the, you know, police reports or whatever. I I think a, a very common sense reaction is I've seen people get greater sentences for, you know, missing parole for being having uh, small amounts of drugs on them, and uh, Amber Geiger, whatever was going on in her head at the time, whatever her intent was, whatever she believed she was doing, killed a killed a young man who will not have the opportunity to live anymore. And I, I could certainly, I, I think, the frustration around the sentence, uh, the sentence is is definitely valid. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's 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 fair to compare and contrast sentences because you do want to have a standard, right? And you're absolutely right. This was, and I should have mentioned that this was a the jury who came up with this. But at some point, you know, you people still want to say, well, how do we how do we measure, you know, or gauge whether this was fair or not? And so, compared to other instances of similar crimes or lesser crimes. Uh, in, in my estimation, this was a pretty light sentence. Now, I'm one of those people. Now, when you make those comparisons, too, before I go on, when you make those comparisons, understand a lot of times you're comparing you're you're comparing different juries what different juries came up with and you're comparing j- different jurisdictions. 
right? So you see a lot of these memes where, oh, this person got 40 years for this. This person got 10 years for this. Well, they are different jurisdictions. And like, like we said before, you do want to have some level of, uh, you know, some level of consistency there. But when you're talking about, uh, so, you know, uh, one place is in Louisiana, the other one's in Delaware, different juries, different people, different cultures, it's going to be different. And we've talked about the fact that uh, uh, criminal justice isn't an exact science, but we need to get it as right as we can. So I, I do want to be clear on that. Um, but I'm also one of those people I don't get, although I will say, yeah, that seems a little bit light. I don't get excited over long sentences. And I think we need to think twice. And, I, you know, I don't even know that I, I have a conclusion to draw for anybody here. But I do think that Christians need to think twice about getting excited about a long sentence. You may say, OK, that was just I'm glad justice was done. But I don't you know, how excited can we get about a about a long sentence? I'm, I'm kind of just putting it out there. I'm not exactly sure, but it does call, you know, it does call some things to question. And so uh, just something else to think about. But the other thing that you mentioned was his brother uh, after, you know, after, you know, after speaking, asking, can he give Geiger a hug? And a lot of people. Uh, had a, some serious problems with problems with that, in, including several uh, Christian in, influencers, uh, and so there was a robust and spirited debate about that situation. And and that robust and spirited debate was not always constructive, uh, but I think we can all admit that this is a tough situation. It's a situation that almost pits forgiveness against kind of fighting ongoing injustice. Uh, and, and so people were really taking sides. People were talking about the optics. You know, he, he shouldn't have done that. It looks bad. Are people going to just dismiss it because he chose to forgive forgive her? And the first thing I would say is that when it comes to this forgiveness and, and, and fighting, you know, on, ongoing injustice, I think it's a false dichotomy to say that, you know, these you know, that you got to choose one or the other. Right. Either you forgive somebody or you continue to fight justice. We've said over and over when you look at the lives uh, and the testimonies of people like Fannie Lou Hamer, other people in the civil rights movement. Now, there are many examples that show people forgiving and still fighting to change the system and changing the system and still fighting to hold people accountable. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, I think as Christians, we need to be very slow. And this is my major point, probably, of this whole conversation for me. We need to be very slow to police people's forgiveness, right? In this case, John's brother has to find a way to live faithfully in the face of his brother's death. He has to be able to do this without becoming bitter. He has to be able to do this without becoming captive to hatred. I think that he gets to make the decision whether he wants to forgive somebody or not. It's been over a year since his brother died. You don't tell people when they can and how they can forgive somebody. You know, I really, truly believe that uh, being faithful and his decision to be faithful and doing what he needed to get over the situation is more important than the optics that you think now this criminal justice system is not going to change because he hugged somebody who did something wrong. You know, you got to you just be very careful about that. So I commend what he did. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it spoke volumes. Of course, he was upset with her. He wasn't doing that to make necessarily uh, for the show of it. He was doing it because that's the right thing to do. And I think he, he you know, he's to a certain extent was able to explain that. Um, and so you won't hear me questioning people's forgiveness uh, as if in for as if uh, unforgiveness accomplishes anything. Right. Um 
I've said this before, and you, I think you, we wrote an article together on this. I really believe that forgiveness frees us from the bondage of bitterness and that it really allows us to address injustice with a clear mind and a clear heart. It is the opposite of cowardice, if you ask me, especially within this context. It allows us to take the moral high ground in the conversation and hold wrongdoers accountable without kind of reciprocating their hatred or, or, or kind of taking on uh, on that sickness. Uh, and who knows? Maybe as she sits down and thinks about this, if she was ra- racist, as reports say, and all these other things, maybe her heart will change. Now, that doesn't mean she doesn't need to serve time. But how wonderful would that be? because of what he was able to do, that her heart changed. Christians should care about that. No matter how upset you are with what she did, you should at the end of the day want her heart to change even more than you want her to serve time. So just some things that we need to think about, but uh, don't, don't you know, be very slow to police people's forgiveness because of the optics. And I think people, sometimes we put too much into those optics and, and what really the, the effect of, of, of them are, but um I would have to say that at the end of the day, I commend what he did and I'm not going to question that. But at the same time, and let me say this, as we talk about the importance of forgiveness, forgiveness should not be used to dismiss injustice. Um, It should not be used to suggest uh, that people should not be upset and that people shouldn't bring it to your attention. We have to stop looking for reasons not to deal with the injustice in our system. Uh, John's brother's example, I think, is a great example, but not for the reason that a lot of people thought it was a great example. You should not use this to say, look at what he did. You should do the same thing and just get over it. Now, that is not the point from a Christian perspective that should be made. Forgiveness is great, but there is an injustice that still needs to be dealt with. And those two things are separate. And we need to be able to to understand and really engage both. Yeah. Well, I, I don't have much to add to that. You said, you know, I will say, I mean, two things on, on the one side, just to maybe double down on something that you said, we we need to be very careful. And, and really, I'm just going to repeat what you said. We need to be really careful, especially if you're out out in public as a Christian, uh, as a Christian representative. If, if that's where your influence lies and, and that's where your public profile sort of sort of lies, if that's how how, how you're known in the world, uh, need to be really careful about sort of using sort of temporal earthly justifications for rejecting something that has deep biblical roots and and. and uh, we just need to be cognizant of the fact that there are I saw people repeating the same arguments about forgiveness from people who don't share uh, a Christian perspective um, uh, and taking them on as their own. And there was just no difference. And, and uh, if you're taking your 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 cues and, and, and you're going to accuse a brother in Christ of somehow being less angry and being less offended at the injustice that took the life of his own brother than you are and that you're tweeting about like there just has to be some self-awareness there. And then to the other side, I'll say for, for those who, who uh, we need to be vigilant. So if we're going to uphold the value of forgiveness in society and the, the testimony of, uh, of, 
the love of Christ that 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 shows the world. We need to be vigilant against any who would try to misuse that and appropriate that for their own sort of self-interest or political cause. And and I, I will say just one example of this that took my breath away is the Dallas Police Department tweeted on October 2nd, and I'm just going to read it, both of John, uh, John's brother's request to hug Amber Geiger and Judge Kemp's gift of her Bible to Amber represent a spirit of forgiveness, faith, and trust. In this same spirit, we want to move forward in a positive direction with the community. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm, <laughs> you know, I'll hold out, but maybe I'm being ungracious. I, I saw that, and I think the reaction of many people um, uh, saw that as a crass <laughs> uh appropriation of what happened mm. that is not the dallas police department's duty to appropriate what happened in that courtroom to sort of leverage that for how the community ought to think about the police department that that was uh that was uh misguided to say the least and so you know similar to how we talk about civility justin you, you know these are important things to defend and part of defending them means being as vigilant, if not more vigilant, about when people who 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 pose as defending civility, pose as defending uh, forgiveness, actually try and misuse those things for their own ends to uh, obfuscate injustices, to advance their own self interest, and so uh, it, you know I, I I think that's the way I've 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 looked I've looked at at, at this, um, and, and I, you know I'll just say just personally. It was just disheartening. I had to turn off social media and and just kind of uh, uh, go to prayer. It, it, it was disheartening to see the, the, the way that something so personal and so potent and, frankly, so spiritually potent just evolved into, I think, just a lot of careless careless talk on on all sides of this thing and so yeah it, it got ugly man uh it got really ugly and i think it, one of the things that you saw was number one we have too many low information influencers <laughs> in christian circles and i think we all need to admit when we don't have all the information and be willing to step back from the computer step back from your iphone before you say something that really doesn't make sense and i've i've, I've tweeted things that i i wouldn't necessarily proud of but we can all try to do a little bit better on that. But it also shows you that some of our Christian influencers are looking for validation from people outside of the faith. They're looking to say something where they can get some tweets from some people that are outside the faith. And you can very you can really tell that that they put this stuff out there sometimes to get that validation from others on the outside instead of saying, no, what is Christianity without forgiveness? I mean, if there's anything you're going to question, the last thing you should qu question as a Christian is forgiveness. Uh, so, you know, but we're going to be, you know, we're going to be gracious. Uh, hope that we do better in the, in the next opportunity. But I'm with you. I had to I had to take a little bit of a break because uh, it was uh, it was hard to deal with. Yeah. Well, Justin, well, I mean, well, we've, we've we've had a lot to talk about in this episode. I do want to cover one more facet of of, of this, which is, uh, as we mentioned the, the the judge, uh, the judge presiding over the case, uh, following the case, 
came down, gave Amber Geiger a hug. That was broadly televised. What people didn't see is she also hugged the entire family, John's entire family. Um, uh, but but the hug from the judge was widely televised. Uh, and then uh, she gave a- uh, Amber Geiger a-, a Bible and told her to read John 316. Uh, this was another one of those ca- where, you know, I saw, I saw people saying, uh, gosh, uh, this is in- improper. Uh, thought maybe this put her partiality into question. Uh, the Freedom from Religion Foundation filed a lawsuit uh, suggesting that this was uh, a violation of separation of church and state and undermine the credibility of uh, of the, the position uh, she holds and undermine trust in the judiciary system. I mean, um, th- this is... Uh, Freedom from Religion Foundation. This is basically what they what they do when religion shows up in in the public square. They 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 file a lawsuit. Um, I want to um, I want to say really one one key thing about this, which is uh, be very attentive to the use of the word impartiality. The the the, the New York Times did a story on on this uh, asking whether the hug and the giving of the Bible was improper. And you read the story. It was really well done, really fair. And they said it wasn't necessarily the expression of compassion because that's actually pretty familiar in the courtroom. They talked about a judge in Brooklyn who over the past 20 years uh, often uh, hugs uh, uh, defendants in, in his cases that, uh, that, that, uh, often judges express their personal sort of well wishes, even for people that they've just uh, convicted. So that wasn't unusual. And then the article says, but the, the real question here is, uh, wasn't it inappropriate for a Bible to be given out? And I even saw some Christians saying, you know, yeah, that wasn't really her, her role. What I want to point out is that if the judge had trotted out some sort of vapid, the kind of vapid slogans that we say now that are accepted as uh, that are accepted as conventional wisdom. If she had told Amber to, you know, b- believe in yourself and and uh, uh, things are going to turn out. If she would have handed Amber Geiger a, a book from a secular psychologist about dealing with guilt, uh, I, I really doubt any eyelashes would have been batted over it. Uh, instead. What people are really trying to say, uh, what, what, certainly what the Freedom From Religion Foundation folks are trying to say is that the, the, the Bible is a source of knowledge that should really be impermissible in, uh, in a setting that's supposed to be about rationality and partiality. That religion is, is, is by its very basis an impartial and personal thing that that doesn't have public value. Uh, And I would be, uh, you know, speaking about things Christians should be careful about, Christians should be really careful about ratifying that point of view, even if it comes under the cover of uh, of sort of legal terminology and and, uh, a perspective about uh, whether her faith uh, meant that she favored Amber Geiger in the case, all, all that stuff. Yeah, I, I'd be, I'd be, uh, the, the judge was clearly moved by what happened, that everything had been decided. Uh, and, and I think she gave Amber something that was, that was pretty, pretty helpful. And so, um, 
so I did think that that the, the, the judge's role in all of this and the way that discussion has played out has been has been really interesting, Justin. Yeah, there it is. I think you put it well. Well, uh, f- folks, it, we are uh, nearing the end. Uh, I think we just hit an hour. This will be the longest episode, but we wanted to make sure that we got you uh, enough content to uh, to 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 see you through to cover uh, cover uh, some of the important events that have taken place. Uh, we're gonna be back next week with updates on impeachment. Uh, we're, we're gonna talk about we weren't able to get to in this episode. President Trump's decision related to Syria uh, and and Turkey. We'll we'll talk about that on the next episode. Uh, but thank you again for listening. We, we um, would encourage you again to leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, spread the word uh, about this podcast. The more folks we have sort of feeding into this community, the more vibrant it will be. And, and we appreciate those of you who tune in every week. Uh, Justin, any any final words? That's it. We'll see y'all next week. All right, folks. Have a blessed week. This is the Church Politics Podcast. This is the groove. Tell me, yeah. I'm scolding the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know.